Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And it's good to be here. Great to see you. It's so good to see you as well. Always is. How was your Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving was not filled with turkey, and I loved every second of it. That's right. You told me that you had steak. I had steak. That's amazing. I had turkey. I was with my parents, and that's about it. It was it was really like small, quiet Thanksgiving. Obviously, many, many had a small, quiet Thanksgiving this year. I was about to say, is yours typically pretty large? Well, every other year it is, but this was one of the off years anyway, where it's usually smaller, so it felt pretty normal for the most part. <laughs> yeah, I didn't spend it with my family, and I ended up having to go home and make up for it on Sunday as mm. I didn't, but I don't regret it. I felt good about it. I mean, like I said in the last episode, or you said, baby, Thanksgiving's a farce, so... <laughs> It doesn't matter that I didn't celebrate it, because what is there to celebrate? I actually told my parents this year about the true origin of Thanksgiving. They didn't know? No, Well, they knew that it was a little bit <sighs> fictional, but they, I don't think they knew the true extent. You know, if Abraham Lincoln declared it a holiday, and it was sort of like a political move to promote national pride during civil war tensions right both between you know white and black americans but also north and south americans but also that thanksgiving itself didn't even happen that way that it was the pilgrims they were really excited about their harvest and they were shooting off their cannons and guns because they were really excited about their corn that grew and then the native americans came because they were like, why are these crazy people shooting off all of their artillery? Why did I even take AP US history when <laughs> I have you to remind me years and years later of how inadequate my memory of historical events truly is? That's basically all I know. Obviously, that's just the tip of the iceberg, but it really was something that was sort of cultivated in the minds of Americans, I guess. Yes, decolonialized history. Let's go. Yeah, oh my gosh, there's so many things that we don't know. Colonize. Decolonize. Decolonize. Decolon. Decolonize. Decolon your eyes, Elise. Get the ass out of your eyes. What are we doing? All right, I got to work on that, I guess. <laughs> this is a kid's show. No, it's not. <laughs> but something that I think that the movie we're covering today did really well is weird family tensions at the dinner table oh my gosh this movie i when i was watching it with shay because we're back to our movie watching sessions so i can stay safe <laughs> and not as scared as i can be i said to shay before anything objectively terrifying even happened i was like this is already so terrifying because of the family intention the racism, just the toxic masculinity. The guy who plays the grandpa is the same actor who plays Mr. Filch in the Hotter Harry Potter series. The Hotter Perry series. <laughs> the hotter, in the Hotter Perry series. <laughs> just setting up the world that the movie takes place in was very frightening. I read an interview with the director right before this, and it said that his intention was to create an environment where his actors felt like they were in a pressure cooker. And I think he succeeded in creating that type of environment with all of the tension, just like you said. Well, let's talk about our movie. So our movie this week that we're talking about is called Await Further Instructions from 2018. Yes, it came out on Netflix in 2018, but it had a release in the UK. It is a British film. 
The basic synopsis of Await Further Instructions is a son or about a college age or a re- recently graduated. What, what do you think? I would say, yeah, like maybe his senior year in college. I mean, his girlfriend is in her residency, right? So that would be... So she'd be like maybe closer to 24, 25, 26. Yeah, so a mid-20-something man brings home his girlfriend for Christmas dinner with his family that he is estranged from, and things become weirder and weirder and weirder. That's the basic synopsis of what is going on. But yeah, we can talk about our ladies. Yeah, so our first lady is Angie. So her full name is Angia, but she's called Ange or Angie in the film. She is Nick's girlfriend. So the girlfriend of the son who's estranged from his family. Yes. And like Elise said, she is in her residency of her doctor stuff. Yeah. She's definitely, definitely trying to be a doctor, which I have not, I really don't know much about what the process of being a doctor is like. I only know from my extensive knowledge of Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> so she might even be closer to 30, but oh, maybe Meredith Grey doesn't age. I don't know. Well, they look so young. They look really young, our, our actors. So Nick and Nirja look really young. Or I'm sorry, Nick and Angie. Nirja Naik is the actress who plays Angie. Yes. And Angie is an Indian woman. And that is relevant to a lot of the tension that culminates within this family because it is a white British family. And there becomes a lot of racially charged language and Mm -hmm. stereotyping Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So then aside from Nick and Angie who are dating, there is Beth Milgram, who is Nick's mother. And she is played by Abigail Crutenden. And she, I would say, is a very submissive mother type. Mm -hmm. She is just so happy to see her son. She is also very aware that Nick's father is a lot of the reason that Nick hasn't come home in the past three years. So she is doing everything she can to make them comfortable, almost in a groveling way, I would say. I agree. But it almost seems like Nick feels badly for his mother. He feels badly that he's not there for his mother. It seems like in the moments we see the two of them together, particularly in the beginning of the film, there is sort of a loving relationship there. It's just strained under everything else. I would absolutely agree. And then the final lady in this movie is Kate, who is Nick's older sister. And she, I would say, is early 30s. Mm -hmm. And she is married to a guy named Scott. So I don't know what their last name is or surname if we're (laughs) talking British people. But she, I would say, needs a lot of attention. Yeah. So she's played by Holly Weston. She looked so familiar to me, but you said that a lot of these actors didn't have wiki pages. They were like British soap opera TV time actors. They absolutely had their like different films and accolades, but none of which I would say I recognize. And that's not to diminish British cinema or TV or film. It's just in terms of looking at perhaps horror related works, there wasn't much for Mm -hmm. me to see. It was a lot of TV roles for a lot of these folks. But you're right that Kate likes attention and she is two weeks away from delivering her baby. That is right. She is pregnant and she is going to remind everybody that she is pregnant. And I mean, she gets to, I guess, when you're that pregnant. That is true, but it is at the expense of a conversation not being about her for Mm -hmm. a second. And she is not very friendly or welcoming to Angie or Nick, really. Very true. Definitely tension there. 
So rounding out our cast of characters, like Elise said, there is Grandad, who is played by the same actor who plays Filch in the Harry Potter series. And then there is Tony, who is the father of the group, who is married to Beth. And then there are Scott and Kate and Angie and Nick. So everyone is coupled up pretty much except Grandad. So we have about seven people that are all in this house together when things happen. So the movie starts out with Nick and Angie driving through the countryside and arriving at Nick's family home. And Angie is professing about how much she wants to meet his family. And he is really begging her not to make him do this. And he is very resistant. And she is very optimistic, very happy to meet them and excited. And they knock on the door and they are greeted by Beth, who is so excited to see Nick again after all this time. It is interesting. Something I noticed about Beth when she answers the door is all of her attention is on Nick. Yeah, it's like Angie didn't even need to be there. Yeah. So even though Beth on the surface is much more welcoming and kind to Angie, there is still that sort of air of I don't really need to pay as much attention to you. It's definitely the kindness is at an arm's length. Good way to say it. And It's like that, too, when Angie offers a gift to Beth as a thank you for welcoming me in your home. And it is a basket of Indian sweets, as she calls them. So she names off a couple of these delicacies and desserts that she wants to offer for the Christmas dinner. And Beth does a very good job of smiling really big and accepting it graciously, but also looking very confused. And this is not how I do Christmas. This isn't my pie. This isn't, these aren't my cookies. Mm -hmm. So you can still tell that that cultural difference, even in Beth, who is unquestionably the kindest of the group, that is already sowing some doubt in Angie that this isn't going to be the home run that she expected to hit and getting her perhaps future in-laws to like her. Mm, Exactly. We meet Gramps next and they go and they say Merry Christmas and Angie introduces herself and Granddad just gives a very like wary look, just kind of grunts in her direction. And granted, he doesn't seem like a very outwardly kind guy. But again, this is demoralizing for Angie. And then Tony comes down the stairs And Tony starts out with, well, you didn't tell us you were coming. And then Beth starts groveling because Beth's like, well, actually, he told me he might come, which, again, strikes a little bit of attention in that marriage and how subservient she is. And, you know, Nick was saying, oh, it's it's not like it was a confirmed thing. My phone wasn't working on the road, so I couldn't confirm. And, oh, you know, your phone wasn't working these past three years either. So it's like that moment when you're like a broody teenager And the family party started, but you're just like not ready to socialize yet or, you know, get asked if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or ask about your weight or ask if you're still doing soccer or, (laughs) you know, whatever the questions are. And then the second you do decide to like branch out, your mom goes, oh, look who decided to join us. Oh, my gosh. It's like the worst. And that's exactly the tone that Tony strikes with Nick here. And that's the tone that he continues throughout the entire film. Like he is very specific about how he wants things run. He will let you know if he doesn't like the way you're going against his word or if you disagree with him. So I think that that's a very appropriate interaction for him to cause. So Angie decides to try to break up this tension by walking right up to him and shaking his hand and saying, Hi, I'm Angie. I'm Nick's girlfriend. Thank you so much for having me. And he goes, very nice to meet you, Angela. Yeah, he just assumes her name is Angela, which we know it's not because it's Angia. But again, that kind of affirms that very, like, I don't know, like those expectations for whiteness, those expectations for like a more maybe traditional 
traditional image of what the family would expect Nick to bring home based on their own ideas. I don't know. Something about that interaction I I just thought was really interesting. And I think that that's taken on all ends, too. So Tony calls her Angela. And, you know, you see Angie kind of wince at that. And then it cuts to Nick in the kitchen with his mom. And I believe you get a shot of desserts not even being opened yet. But, you know, mom's cookies are on the table. And you're seeing that all of Angie's attempts to really introduce herself and involve herself in this family. And I would even say she even tries to assimilate at all, but even just trying to play nice, even by like bringing a gift or mm-hmm. going up and shaking someone's That's hand. That's a great hostess gift. Are you kidding me? It's wonderful. But then you get this uncomfortable exchange between Gramps and Ugh. Tony, where Gramps pretty much says like, you know, you're a store clerk and your son's a pansy. If you just hit him more when you was a kid, he wouldn't be as defiant. He wouldn't have disappeared for three years. Pretty much saying you suck as a dad and I beat the shit out of you when you were a kid and you turned out fine, didn't you? So you're seeing here there's a lot of generational trauma going on between Gramps, Tony, and Nick. And that only gets deepened and further exposed and brought to light throughout the film when weird things start happening. In addition to Gramps... <laughs> Being the most sort of misogynistic, toxic, masculine, I would say he's also one of the most outwardly racist characters. Only second to Kate, maybe. Yeah. So Kate and Scott come parading in and Kate's holding her belly and Scott's Mm -hmm. filming her the entire way. And she takes up all the attention. She sits center of the room. You get the sense that Scott is very subservient to and caring of and coddling of Kate. Mm -hmm. So all the attention goes on her right away. And right away, even when she meets Angie for the first time, you can tell she's just like, oh, I didn't know you celebrated Christmas. Like, you know, things like that just starts giving like a lot of microaggressions Mm -hmm. in a very cruel, spirited way. Not in a innocent type of way. In a I know what I'm doing type of way, but if you call me out on it, I'm just going to pretend I'm a dumb white girl kind Mm -hmm. of way. And she makes a comment about she's worried that when she delivers the baby, she's going to have a doctor from a different country because sometimes doctors do residencies and and she called them foreign cover doctors. Yeah, I'm not really sure what that means entirely. But again, like a very xenophobic, I don't want to have a doctor that's not white deliver my baby. And of course, Angie is in medical school. Angie, you know, not only is she Indian and she's has already shared some of her culture with the family as it is, she's studying to be a doctor. So this is a backhanded comment on many levels. Kate never really redeems herself. I think that she just becomes progressively more and more difficult to tolerate. Yeah, and that's further exemplified. They're playing Scrabble and Angie's putting down these large words. Yes! Oh my gosh. They're not even that large. They're just like not as commonly used. Like, They're high point words. Yes. <laughs> yes. They're high. They're words <laughs> high that you're words. like something like fugue or, you know, yes. so- something like that. But she puts down a word and Kate's first comment is Indian words don't count. And Angie's like, it's not an Indian word. Would you like me to get the dictionary again? So you can tell that at every turn, Kate is trying to 
expose Angie's Indianness as her difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Angie's sticking up for herself. She sticks up for herself to Kate, and she sticks up for herself to Gramps when there's a news broadcast of a potential terrorist attack happening, and he starts making a lot of xenophobic comments of, oh, they're letting all these people come in, and uses a lot of racially charged language. And then that's where tensions start to rise, where... Angie starts to correct Gramps and Mm -hmm. talk about his views and Kate just goes off. Yeah, she's like, don't talk to my grandpa that way. Who do you think you are coming in this house? You're so patronizing. You think you're better than everybody. Mm -hmm. And it causes fights of where Nick's like, don't talk to my girlfriend like that. And then Tony's like, don't talk to your sister like that. It's just reminiscent of every awkward dinner table fight times 50. It's so heated and we've watched the tension build 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 from the very beginning so we see that that causes nick and angie to start to go upstairs to perhaps get their stuff beth is very overly apologetic and is trying really hard to apologize on behalf of tony because tony is the one that essentially was like you will apologize to your sister and does not defend angie at all so they are going to leave and The mom is being overly apologetic. Oh, please tell me you'll stay. Please tell me you'll stay. And Nick has this moment where it's like, you know, it's not you, right? It's very upsetting because you can tell the mom really wants that relationship. And he just ends the conversation with come visit us on your own after the new year. But I'm not coming back here again. Mm -hmm. So the two of them go upstairs. They go to bed before they decide we're going to just leave tomorrow morning before anybody wakes up and just kind of skirt out. But when they go to do so, they open the front door. And there's like a cover over the entryway. It looks as if somebody took some sort of like ribbed dark metal sheet and like blocked off the doorway. You know, that's very puzzling. So Nick and Angie go to the windows, they go to the back door, they go everywhere they can. Every opening is covered by this metal impossible to break down or get through cover. And it's not like they're like metal bars like on like a jail cell. There is no light being brought in. I looked at it and it almost looked like it was just like lines of black licorice. That's just kind of what it looked like to me. But it's like these individual wires that are all made of metal and they're all stacked. The only indication that there's an outsider is that there are vents or like there are little tubes that can pump air in and out. And that's the only sense that there is something that leads to the outside. Well, that's what they assume right. the tubes do. Because shortly after Nick and Angie start freaking out about the vents, you know, Nick gets an axe. He's trying to axe through the front door. And then everybody wakes up and the dad sort of takes control and is like, okay, well, these tubes must be for air. Let's turn on the TV. Let's see what's going on. If we can get any information from the outside world. And right away, the dad is pretty much on the assumption that maybe there might be a terrorist attack maybe there's some sort of contagion the government is trying to protect us we should do exactly as we are told in order to give us our best chance of survival and getting through he has an abnormally large amount of trust in the government he says quote it's the authorities obviously there are some ingenious people in government these days so he is explaining away everything he is saying oh well obviously these tubes are for air obviously this is this obviously this is that so then the power gets cut and the only power that is left is the television and it has like a black screen with very simple 
green or red green 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 Mm -hmm. writing that says stay indoors and await further instructions and that's where we get our titular line but yeah that's such a good point shay like aside from that tv there is no information about anything yeah because their phones stopped working they even lose track of time because all the clocks stopped at 3 Mm a.m so they don't know what time it is either witching hour oh perhaps Years ago, the dad somehow knows that the government took hold of some TV network in case there was ever an emergency that they could use to communicate with people. So that is what the father is sort of operating under the assumption of, that they are being told by the government what to do to protect themselves. But again, there's really no concrete information coming from anywhere about what this actually is, what's actually going on. And that's really creepy. Yeah, and this is where you start to see the dad take a little bit more of an insecurity of his own masculinity because of how much, just through Nick's presence, the inadequacy of his fatherhood has been exposed to his own father, to Gramps. Mm. Because Gramps, again, is laying into him that he didn't discipline Nick and he obviously wasn't a good enough father. Otherwise, Nick wouldn't have brought home this woman and wouldn't have been away for a lot of years. So you see him see this situation as a little bit of an opportunity of this is where I get to take charge and this is where I get to be the leader. So then to do that, he pulls Scott aside, which I thought was super interesting. Mm -hmm. He pulls Scott aside and is like, we are men. We are shepherds. We have to protect the herds even from themselves. So he is really taking on this, I am going to save the day and it is going to be done my way type of situation. But he does this to Scott because he doesn't trust Nick. He doesn't trust Mm -hmm. his own son to follow his lead because he knows he won't. But then he's taking Scott, who is really like a muscular dude, but I wouldn't say offers a lot of command. I agree. I mean, we see, like you mentioned earlier, he's very much in the marriage that he has with Kate. You know, Kate is the one that's very much in control. And of course, especially in a setting like this, this is Kate's family. So perhaps we could even argue that Scott is still trying to find a place with the family, to be comfortable with the family, right? If this is a new marriage, this is their first child. So this also seems like an opportunity for Scott to prove to his father-in-law, hey, I can listen to you. I can be here. I can do what I need to do to be impressive. I also just really liked his gender performance or how he expresses his gender because the entire time you see him doting on Kate. Obviously, that's in a subservient way, but he's really reactive to her needs. He's always like rubbing her shoulders or asking if she's okay, asking if she Mm -hmm. needs anything, being very complimentary, being very protective. And I think... When you look at that relationship and mirror it with Beth and Tony's mm. relationship, mm-hmm. he, he is a very affectionate guy. He isn't a guy who's going to take charge because even later in the movie, Kate is like, look at you. You know, you're letting my father take charge and you're not even stepping up to protect your family. Look at you. What are you doing? Act like a man to set that aspect of a man is taking charge, a man is raising his voice, a man is using physical aggression. But Scott tries to fight back and is like, well, what am I going to do? Like, this isn't for me. Like, that's just Mm -hmm. not how I am. But no, Kate is like, if you are a man, you will back my father up and you will take his side and you will just take charge for your family. Mm -hmm. So you really see this push-pull with Scott the entire movie of who he actually is. He's a very nice, gentle guy, but he just looks intimidating because he's a big 
muscular dude. And he wears a muscle shirt to Christmas dinner. He does wear a muscle shirt <laughs> to Christmas so dinner. so funny. That reminds me of, oh my God, have you ever seen 51st States? Yes, the guy who likes spam. Yeah, 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 who always wears the mesh pennies. Yeah. This is the, bro- the brother. Spam and Reese's. I love spam and Reese's. Yes, yes. <laughs> Wait, yeah, so that's, he reminds me of him. Then they get their second set of instructions, which is your food is contaminated, eat nothing. And of course, that is heartbreakingly timed right as they're about to eat their beautiful Christmas dinner. But I would say that dinner was already very uncomfortable to begin with because Mm -hmm. you have Angie fighting with Kate and then Kate fighting with Nick and Mm -hmm. then Gramps fighting with Tony. So dad steps in. He takes everything and throws it out. And Nick's trying to argue with him. Dad, this is our food. What are we going to do without food? But everything is thrown out. And this is where you have that exchange with Kate and Scott. And Scott ends up going and shoving Nick and being Mm. like, we have to protect our family. We can survive for weeks without food. Like, this is the way we're going to do it. We have to follow his lead. And then the next instruction pops up shortly after that, which is decontaminate yourselves, strip and scrub yourselves with household bleach. So everything up until this point seems a little strange. But Nick says, I don't know when he says this in the movie, but he even says it's like, it's like they're reacting to what we do. Every time they complete something, it comes back with something 10 times worse. So this obviously is like, this isn't good for you. This isn't good for you. But then you have a montage of everyone kind of like in their tidy whities looking at this thing of bleach and grandpa scrubbing his balls. And Mm -hmm. you get a scene, such a heartbreaking scene with... Beth and Tony. We see Beth. She's sort of making her rounds upstairs, making sure everybody has their bleach. She hears Nick and Angie sort of giggling through the door. And and at first, you're not sure how she's going to react. But then she gets a smile across her face. And you assume she's like, oh, he's young and in love. That's so cute. I'm so glad my son is home, etc. And she goes into her room where she's going to bleach herself with Tony. And she kind of takes off her robe. And he very rudely responds, what are you doing? She says something along the lines of like, you remember when we used to take baths together Mm -hmm. and like reveals herself to him. And he's like, you think this is a game? Mm -hmm. Like, why are you even playing this? And she, you could tell the look on her face. She is heartbroken. She does not know how she ended up here. She's probably embarrassed too. She's Yeah, she's mortified. Mm. And having that cut with the scene of Nick and Angie who might be having sex or, you know, Mm -hmm. just being very intimate and being very in love. Like, Mm -hmm. you can tell that this is a very loveless marriage so shortly after there's another instruction on the screen that says use trial vaccination kits atmosphere polluted then from the chimney comes a bag with seven vials in it i just realized this is christmas and they're getting like vials from it i didn't even realize like the irony of christmas but getting all those like fucked up vials you know it's instead of santa coming down the chimney it's a bunch of dirty fucking needles (laughs) and that is exactly what they are and angie points out right away after the needles arrive she says these have been used her and nick are like i'm not using these like that's so dangerous i'm not using these and Tony comes back with like, it's for our own good. And even in a philosophical sense, a lot of atheistic philosophers would call people who have faith or have a strong religious faith weak because the second that a man receives freedom, he wants to give it up to somebody else. Mm. And this is Tony really doing that because he's like, 
this person over here who I don't know what their reasoning is and I don't know his grand design knows what's best for me. Mm -hmm. But what is so interesting about that is the dad is mindlessly trusting this government, trusting this religious figure, trusting whatever is going on, but refuses to trust the doctor Mm -hmm. in the room, which is so Trump and COVID. I don't know how else to say it, but Mm -hmm. yeah, he just won't trust the expert on the subject that's in the room telling him, hey, no, we're going to get infected. Hey, no, this isn't a good idea. He's trusting this person who will never know who he is or this authority figure that he can't even see over a woman, a woman of color, Mm -hmm. a qualified doctor. So two things you said that I want to touch on. I love that you pointed out how sometimes a very strong faith system, whatever, can be seen as a weakness because Anytime you can experience freedom or have an actual opportunity to lead, you'd give it up to follow somebody else. And I think that we definitely see that here because whatever is going on through the TV is creating the illusion that Tony can be a leader, but he's really not a leader at all. And the other thing with Angie, yes, she is the professional. She is the one with the most experience and that comes into play later as well. But I love that the movie picks this really obviously fucked up thing like the idea of using dirty used needles anybody watching this who is a non-medical professional knows that that's already fucked right yeah so we can side with angie even though she's the professional we can side with her right away because we're taught about that ever since we're little kids don't share things like that with people like every time you go to the doctor you know that they're using clean needles you know why that is if you take a health class (laughs) in middle school like you know the the dangers of using a used needle so like the movie does a really good job kind of like setting up the sides and like supporting angie supporting nick so the shots are given to the most obedient to the least obedient so Mm. tony stabs himself right in the arm right away gramps ends up grabbing it and shoving it in his arm maybe right after the dad does and then goes from beth to kate and then i think nick ends up folding and being like we have to do it we have to do it Mm -hmm. so then nick and angie end up administering it themselves but very shortly after gramps starts having a seizure starts puking black liquid and dies Yep, he dies. And to deal with this loss, Tony says this is an acceptable loss. I don't know how Tony really justifies any of his arguments because he's like, listen, it's a cure and cures don't work for everybody. Somebody had to die. It's very likely that one of these wasn't going to help and he wasn't strong enough. He's Mm -hmm. an old man. Old people die. Like he is just finding any way of saying like in war, there are casualties. He refuses to believe that the shot had anything to do with it. He's like, it's very likely that would have happened to us had we not taken it. He refuses to draw the correlation. Your dad, your elderly father just shoved a dirty needle with a mysterious liquid into his arm. And less than five minutes later, he was dead. But he refuses to draw that correlation because his faith in what he cannot see is so much larger than the expertise in the room. And there are clear connections here between like this sort of blind faith and Christianity. And that becomes more obvious later. But already, whenever we see a shot of the TV, there's a small cross hanging above the TV. Mm -hmm. So we always get that constant reminder of this Christianity, this faith. And also when Tony was imploring Scott to sort of follow him, help him lead, of course, he uses that shepherd allusion to the Bible. So we really are getting glimpses, not only of maybe a blind faith in the government, blind faith in authority, but also this connection to Christianity as well. It's also this 
language around there's acceptable loss and old people die. Obviously, this movie came out in 2018, but these connections to COVID-19 are just hitting really hard in terms of the apathy that people have toward who does get lost in the shuffle when all of these things go wrong. And even the idea that, yeah, these young people were unaffected by this shot, but this old person lost his life because of it. Yeah, just this idea of there is a doctor in the room that's telling you one thing, but there is a political leader that's telling you a different thing. And a lot of people aren't trusting the expert. They're trusting the political leader that they have so much faith in. And there's conversation after Gramps dies between Angie and Nick, where Angie's like, we can't go on with him in charge anymore. And I just wrote hot Trump after it. And it's funny, but it's not because there's so many people that have had to live with, we can't keep going on with a guy like this in charge and not everyone survived. There's probably soon to be over 300,000 Americans that because of his decisions... Obviously, maybe not all of them could have been prevented, but my goodness, there are people who, even in death, are like, I support him. It is really interesting how this was made in 2018, pre-pandemic, and there's so many similarities to what's going on now, specifically in American culture, but also in what's going on in other cultures as well. After everybody takes their trial vaccines, which I thought it was interesting that the TV literally said trial vaccines, because it it wasn't like a, this is a vaccine that already had undergone trials. This is a vaccine that is a trial vaccine right now. (laughs) So... I don't know. I thought that was weird. But the TV says, return all medical apparatus through the return slot. Scott bags everything up. He puts it through the slot and the the sheet cover in the front door. It looks like a vagina. Yeah. Yeah. You pointed that out right away. And uh, y'all, Shay is right. It looks like a vagina. It even like pulsates at one point, doesn't it? Yes. So it's essentially, it's not a slot like a male slot. It's a vertical Mm -hmm. slot that, and instead of things going straight down, it like curves out enough where there is a tiny opening Mm -hmm. and it's very oval shaped. It's kind of like opening and closing because it's ready to accept something inside Mm -hmm. of it. So, Mm -hmm. and you, you can't see through it. No. So Scott places the medical equipment in but then with his fingers tries to keep the opening open so he could perhaps see to the other side but this vagina grew some teeth and chops three of scott's fingers off and for the record i called that i knew when i was watching it i was like his fingers are gonna get cut off and then they did so i felt good about that guys So they treat Scott in the kitchen and the mom is like busying herself being like, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. She's not having any like thoughts of her own. Even in this crisis situation where she knows nothing's okay, she's taking things out of herself and just trying to fix things for everybody. So I noticed that. And then so they're tending to him. And we see Tony and Nick have a conversation about Gramps being dead. Yeah. And it's kind of this weird moment. Also kind of sad, I guess. We saw Gramps before he died. Before he died. Before he did. We saw Gramps before he died call Tony Squelcher a couple times. And in this moment that Shay was talking about where we have another fight between Nick and Tony, like in the quote unquote dead room, like where they're keeping the dead body. Tony has this monologue where he's like, Squelcher, you called me Squelcher. I wet my bed once because I was too scared to get up and wake you and I laid there all night and then you beat me the next morning and said that a real man could hold it. It's like this really haunting monologue. It's like, is that what we're framing masculinity off of? Is who can hold their piss most? I mean, that's wild. That is so bad for you. You can't just hold your pee. That's going to cause so many issues. But... (laughs) 
it's the most human we've seen tony he's shaking with anger but he is also crying so like you can tell that he is obviously mourning the loss of his father and in this moment i think this is as close to nick has come to trusting his father because he is seeing that he is genuinely affected by this loss Mm -hmm. and really trying to comfort his father in that moment and even the way that Tony has his jaw set. It's almost like he's talking the way that his father does. He's talking through his teeth. Mm, his jaw. Anger. Yeah, his jaw is very sad. His eyes are dimmed and stuff. So you see him almost imitating his father's mannerisms because he realizes now he truly is the boss. Mm. Because even earlier, Gramps was mocking Tony's attempts at taking charge openly, like being like, laughing, openly laughing at him to the point where Tony was even like, this is my household. Do not undermine me in front of my household Mm -hmm. again. I think that was the last thing he said to him Mm. before the shots happened. Mm -hmm. So you really see him almost adapting the mannerisms and this toughness of Gramps in this moment, embodying them because it is truly him now. So after this scene, another prompt shows up on the television that says one of your number is infected. And of course, everybody assumes it's Angie. They think that maybe because she was sneezing, she had a stuffy nose before. So they think that maybe she was infected on one of her shifts before she got to their house. Also, there is already so much prejudice stacked up against her because she's Indian. And so against her will, against Nick's wishes, they lock her in the quote unquote dead room with Gramps. Yeah, and leading up to this, there is a vote where Kate's like, well, fine, who does everyone want? And they all obviously vote for Angie, except the mom who flees the room. That's interesting. And I wrote that down because I think even just talking to friends about some of like their mother's political views when it comes to Trump or when it came to this election, I feel like a lot of mothers in attempts to keep the peace with all of their children and their husbands or their families that hold political views is they just choose to be apolitical or they choose to not share their views or not have views. Mm -hmm. So I just found it so interesting that The mom gave up her vote. She just ran out of the room. Mm. She just was like, I am not going to vote against Nick, but I'm also not going to stand up for Nick either. So I'm going to just completely take myself out of the equation and run away, except when they start dragging Angie and she comes back in singing. Yeah, like a huge fight breaks out, right? And then she, yeah, comes back in singing A Christmas Carol. I guess it was a way to sort of diffuse the situation, and it sort of does enough. Like, I could see that it could have been played for comedic relief, but you could just tell that this mother had nothing to say, so she starts teary-eyed singing this Christmas Carol. Do you remember what song it was? Was it, like, one of the ones that's more, like, Jesus-affiliated? I would say it was more religious because I had never heard of it, but... Maybe, like, a reminder of their faith? Either way, it even shuts Tony up where Tony's like, okay, Beth, let's get you to bed. Like, come, Mm, come here, come mm -hmm. here. It's the most sympathetic we've seen him where he realizes that all of this is truly getting to her and truly Mm -hmm. getting to her psyche. But nonetheless, Angie is locked in the bedroom with Gramps' body. By the time it happened, she's like, just let it happen, Nick. Like, I've been around dead bodies before. It's not a big deal. Just let it happen. And honestly, like, maybe she's relieved in some ways to get out of the same space as that family. Honestly, the company of the dead body seems preferable in some ways to being in that toxic environment. Exactly. But her influence doesn't stop from behind the closed door. True. Because Nick is sitting with Angie just on the other side of the door. And she's saying, listen, Nick, you need just need to turn the TV Mm. off. Like, maybe just go downstairs and try unplugging it and just see what happens. We just need to be experimenting right now. We just need to be testing theories. 
And I don't know if Nick would have done that without Angie, because even throughout this, Nick has defended Angie, but he's never defended himself, Mm. I would say. He hasn't really come to his own defenses as much as Angie has come to his defense or he has come to Angie's defense. But I also found that an interesting comparison of just unplug and don't consume anything. And even in this election cycle, in this media cycle, even with COVID, that's what a lot of people have had to do to take care of themselves is like, I cannot be a part of this 24-hour news cycle. I cannot be consuming all of these messages all the time that are influencing me. That is such a good point. I mean, it's so anxiety-inducing. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even think of that, but I totally see it now. That's what he tries to do is he goes downstairs, but then him and Kate have a very tender moment where they talk about the baby and he feels her baby bump Mm. for the first time and he feels his niece or nephew kick and Mm -hmm. it's as tender as they've gotten, but won't last long because even they feel so awkward being any form of intimate because even through some of the shouting matches, you've seen Kate say like, you've always thought you were smarter than me. You've always thought you were better than me. And I think her hatred really comes from the fact that she took so much pride in being a carbon copy of her father or being a carbon copy of her parents. And that's something I wrote down too, where it's like Beth is Nick and Tony is Kate. Like, she thinks that strength is abrasiveness and is authority and is being the loudest person in the room where Nick prefers to be gentle and inclusive and really just tries more to open himself up to other things where Kate has no interest in that. I wonder if Kate is resentful that she is torn between kind of two worlds. Like her and her brother, they prefer to be one way that is sort of against the gender that they represent, right? Mm -hmm. Like Kate's a carbon copy of her dad, but she's still a woman. And in this family... And as we've seen by the dad sort of calling upon Scott to be his shepherd and also Kate's resentment towards her brother. Like, you always thought you were smarter. You always thought you were better. Like, is she hateful that she feels like she has to fulfill a different role than one that comes naturally to her? And again, like, that's not to diminish the way that Kate truly may have felt that way. But we don't really see Nick trying to be smarter or better. No, we don't. I would say he is a very, I mean, he is kind of like our central character. He's kind of like the perspective from whom we're seeing this movie. But I wouldn't say even with the gender disbalance there, he comes off in a way as I am better than. It's listen to my different perspective and that is inherently antagonistic because he is a man. Mm -hmm. And also we see that as well with Angie. Like people think that she's being antagonistic. She's a little bit better at Scrabble than Kate. (laughs) But Kate needs to find a reason as to like, well, Mm -hmm. you're my brother and you this, you're that. And it's like, that's not the case is Kate just seems to have a very external locus of control. That is so interesting. Like the idea, like so many people feel automatically antagonized if somebody is different different than them or has a different opinion or experience than them. And we definitely see that here. So Nick does as he thinks he wants to and says, you're not the boss of me to the TV and unplugs it. And then immediately Kate goes ballistic, yells for her father. Her father comes back in and they plug the TV back in and it says something along the lines of interrupting transmission may bring harm to others. Mm-hmm. So this is where Kate implores Scott, get him. He's trying to kill us. He's trying to kill us. So Scott chases Nick up the stairs. They have a scuffle on the stairs and the way that their house is set up, it's one of those like, how would you describe it? 
So the staircase, it's like if like a two-story up the steps, but then it doesn't lead into like a closed hallway. It's almost like a balcony. So all the doors are in this like open air and like there's like a railing that continues down the quote-unquote hallway. It's like almost picture if there was like a chandelier that someone was going to jump on and swing a swing sea style on but there's no chandelier yeah so they're fighting they're fighting and then kate comes up behind them either trying to defend scott but the entire time she is being like get him scott kill him scott Mm. like being very violent but kate is pushed against the railing she flies over the railing and falls flat on her back flat on her back on the hardwood below and has a massive compound fracture on her thigh it's awful yeah her bone is sticking out she is in a lot of pain she is screaming and i appreciated this too where immediately nick tony and beth they forget they're fighting and they're like oh my god my family member is injured so they carry her to the kitchen but scott freezes because he doesn't know what to do and kate's not telling him what to do oh that's interesting yeah i mean i wouldn't know what to do either Like, that situation is, I mean, so jarring. Even then, Nick starts telling him what to do. He's like, Scott, hold her hand. Calm her down. Scott, go get painkiller, strongest you have. Scott, Mm -hmm. go do this. Go go do that. He can't do anything without someone telling him to do it first. Mm. Whether it's the father, whether it's Kate, he is not a shepherd. (laughs) Well, well, what is a shepherd? Is a shepherd somebody who carries out somebody else's orders? I thought a shepherd's one that leads others and, like, influences their direction in which they move true i'm thinking of like a shepherd dog like dogs that nip at the heels of cattle and but are dogs trained to do that yeah but it's also in their nature it's just so interesting it is interesting so kate is not doing very well and kate is unconscious scott is holding her and this is where you have Scott and Nick have a very humanizing conversation where he's just like, I don't know what to do. I don't want her to die. And he is kind of like reverting back to himself. But this is where he reveals that when Kate fell, the TV turned red and said, I see you. So this is the first confirmation that something from the outside is influencing them in real time. And he shares this with Nick and mom starts talking to the TV. Very poltergeist style. Like, she's praying. She prays to the TV. She's like, hi, I'm Beth Milgram. My daughter is hurt. Please send help. Like, she's not even condemning them for creating the conditions in which this happened, but she is praying to the outside. She's almost worshiping the TV Mm -hmm. and asking for forgiveness or asking for help. Help. Even then... Nick explains to the mom, like, hey, like, this is happening because all these contentions are happening. We need to do this. We need to get out of here. We need to make a plan. And the mom's like, oh, well, like, Bo and the kids are coming over tomorrow and this house is a mess. So I have to go clean about. And she just starts scrubbing the sink furiously. She is so not checked in in -mm. this situation whatsoever. No. At this point, dad's in the study making siege tactics. Yes, he is. And also we see him like considering like water rationing and like scribbling out Angie's name. And obviously it seems like he's making plans to, if they're going to continue the siege to do it without her because she's already in the 
quote unquote contaminated room. And you have a very like choppy montage where you can see he is losing his sanity. Like he is not fully there. So Nick goes to the bathroom and he flushes the toilet and he realizes, oh, the toilet water must be going outside. Like there must be going somewhere. So he knocks away part of the wall of where the piping goes and he tapes his phone to a broom handle and sticks it outside and he can see the outside of the house and it looks like black snakes are crawling or it looks like there's these black spiders it looks like like yeah like snakes and that's he even says that his dad comes in and catches him oh because a screen prompt shows up that says extract information from sleeper agent isn't that when that happens it says so was there a breach first it's yeah it says like breach exfiltration exfiltration that's what it says it says beginning exfiltration or something so pretty much means that and it goes red it changes from green to red and i think the house starts shaking or something it's really really dramatic but pretty much the tv saying hey there's something happening and you need to cut it the fuck out so scott and the father go upstairs and they knock nick out and then they tie nick up and nick gag him they gag him and nick's like just look at the phone just look at the phone and the dad refuses to do so and even crushes the phone refuses Mm -hmm. to like prove that there is even existence of a truth outside of his own and then you see them getting weapons as the tv shows extract info from sleeper agent Mm -hmm. and the dad i don't know if he stabs nick but he cuts Nick, like in his chest area, and he's getting ready to take out one of his eyes mm-hmm. right when we hear Beth screaming from downstairs, and it is revealed that Kate has died and she has succumbed to her wounds. Yes. There is a lot in that moment where Nick's just like, don't you realize this is a twisted experiment? We've done this to ourselves. Don't let them manipulate you. And the father is not hearing it, not hearing it. But Kate is dead. So Scott and the father go downstairs where Beth is mourning. And Tony says, well, in war, there are always casualties where he is removing the humanity of his own daughter. And this is where Beth snaps. She does. She says, you arrogant fucking fool. And then she says a bunch of other things. You never listen to anyone else. Mm -hmm. I hate you. She slaps him across the face. I mean, she says what everybody is thinking. (laughs) But in that moment, when you see, even though he doesn't respect Beth, you can see. And this is what I thought was so interesting is how influential the mom's opinion was, even though she didn't have her own. Because the second she expresses it, Scott flips on Tony and is like, no, like you Mm -hmm. did not protect Kate. Mm -hmm. You said you were going to protect Kate. You did not protect Kate. So Scott and Beth go and untie Nick. And the father just becomes very demoralized and realizes that he has lost the control of this situation. So shortly after this happens, we get another prompt on the TV. And this is when things really just like go exponentially quick. (laughs) So it says activating quarantine, all survivors to the ground floor. So the beings have locked all of the doors in the household by magic. I don't know. No, I think what happened, I think the mom's door is jammed. Oh, okay. But that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Well, obviously, so wait, Angie is in a locked room because she's in the quarantine room. I don't know what the deal is with the mom. Yes. So essentially, we find out that everyone can roam about except for Angie, who is in the dead room which is just a bedroom with the dead body in it. And then the mom had been like freshening up or something in She was looking bedroom. at in the bathroom or in the bedroom. She was in a, she was in another room, but essentially there's this whole big 
kerfuddle about trying to find the key to Angie's locked room because the house was starting to fill up with smoke through, well, I don't even know if it was smoke, but a smoky agent through the vents in the windows. Yes. And Angie starts coughing, severely affecting her. Mm -hmm. Scott helps Nick get the door open. They get Angie out, but then they realize that the mom is trapped, Mm -hmm. but the door is jammed. It won't open nick is trying very hard to punch his way through part of the door is glass so he's Mm -hmm. trying to punch his way through it but the smoke starts overtaking beth she's screaming her skin gets all black and boily she's she realizes before nick is ready to accept that she's gonna die and she's even like go you have to go downstairs go 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 nick's like i'm not leaving you and then we see her like explode basically behind like the translucent glass yeah it's just a big blood spatter and then they're able to make it downstairs and in the family room where the smoke just stops at the Mm -hmm. foot of the stairs and beth is now gone so now we are left with tony the dad nick angie and scott yes so then the tv changes again into it looks like a little tunnel and i said "Ooh, birth canal yeah because the text that comes up on the screen is i am reborn i bring resurrection yeah what the hell okay so the dad starts praying to the tv kind of like we saw the mom do before but this time it's much more frantic he's on his hands and knees and the tv starts projecting lewis and ruby And we had learned earlier that Lewis and Ruby were the names that Scott and Kate were considering for their baby. Yes. So it starts saying, worship me. Mm -hmm. I bring resurrection. And it says, Scott, Ruby, Scott, Ruby. And then Kate's belly moves. Yes. And dad, it seems like it's the divine birth of Christ. It's very religious. (laughs) It's very miraculous that, of course, that this Kate had died and, and... the baby in her belly is still living. And she had been dead at this point for probably hours. Over hours. So yeah. like, there's no way that this baby is still kicking by chance. So Angie and Nick realize, oh my gosh, they lost Scott now mm. because that Scott sees the names of his baby on the TV. So they go to talk and Angie says, when I was upstairs in the dead room, there was a black organism in the back of the TV pulsing and pulsating. What if something like that is in the back of this TV? Mm-hmm. So now we're thinking aliens? Yeah, definitely very alien. Definitely very sci-fi. I'm not sure. Are we meant to believe that it's something from another planet? Are we meant to believe it's something that's manufactured by man? I don't know. Either way, the father is not seeing this as an independent being it is seeing this as the second coming of christ like he genuinely believes that it's not the government anymore like this is god speaking to him and then the prompt shows up that says make a sacrifice to save the unborn nick and angie were sleeping and they rouse both of them up and the dad goes to slit angie's throat but angie says i'm the only person that can save that baby if the baby's alive i am the only person that can perform a c-section so scott who is holding nick lets nick go and attacks his father who is holding angie there's a scuffle and then the dad ends up stabbing scott oh so sad so this is where shit moves into weird territory yeah so the scuffle continues right this isn't the end the dad sacrifices scott but nick is like what the hell he's freaking out and the father is going after nick blah 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 again like this fighting 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 very visceral very intense and eventually with the help of angie they are able to stab him 
or knock him unconscious on the floor in front of the TV. And to kind of finish him off, Nick takes the TV and pulls it down on top of his dad's head. And this is like one of those bigger box TVs. So it's like very heavy, large and we assume that that is what kills the father. For those of you who have seen Scream in the way that Stu dies, think that, where this just big box TV just goes and like electrocutes him and he is Ew. done. <laughs> but then all of the windows get blown out, the mm-hmm. walls start pulsating, and then the TV starts sprouting these little tendrils of wires that just mm-hmm. start reaching out and grabbing for Angie and grabbing for Nick. What we thought was maybe a, like a metal sheet of some sort starts to become uncoiled and it looks like the house was just completely surrounded by wires. And so some of the wires start reaching in from the window to, you know, attack Nick and Angie. Well, actually, at first, they they go for the dad first. Which is gross. I I couldn't watch this part. Yeah, so in this part, once Nick and Angie kind of evade the wires in the main room, the wires creep and plug into the back of the dad's neck and go out of his mouth. He looks very Bane from Batman. Yeah. Like, the father is dead at this point, but Mm -hmm. they lift his body and they're using his body as a vessel and they shove his head through a glass door that leads into the living room and is imploring Nick to worship me, come with me, be with me, be part of me. And Nick realizes then, like, this is a parasite. It needs us to survive. It can't kill us. Mm -hmm. But there's more push-pull. The tentacles end up wrapping Nick where he is, like, lost under all of these, like, tentacles. And the dad ends up whacking him and we don't really see what happens to angie do we no we don't well there's like a moment where you think that nick's revelation is enough to save him and angie Mm -hmm. because he makes a move on what seems to be like a beating wire heart through the window in that mess of wire tangles and he stabs it or throws something at it to kill it but it's not enough. And we do see the wires come back to life and end up... We don't see how they die. They die off screen. We see more an attack on Nick, but we can assume that Angie dies as well. The movie ends with the wires placing Dad in Grandpa's signature rocker, which I mm-hmm. thought was very interesting. They placed him as like in the head of the household chair right in front of the TV, but not before the dad carries the TV, a smaller TV, and puts it right next to Kate's belly. And mm-hmm. I did find this very interesting that at this point, they aren't showing the top of Kate's body. They aren't even showing her face. They are only caring that Kate is a vessel mm-hmm. for a baby, which there's a lot you could say about the purpose of a woman and you know Mm -hmm. unpacking that but then the wires end up overtaking kate's body anyway and eating all of the skin off or like dissolving all of the skin off yeah it was kind of weird she kind of melted yeah and left the baby exactly so this baby who i'm guessing at this point has to be part ghost or part supernatural i don't know (laughs) is the only thing left living and the tv starts shooting off like these tiny baby lights and fireworks and it says hello ruby Mm -hmm. and so we can tell that the baby's a girl and then it says worship me and it pans out from the house and i thought this was a cool shot where it's a big you know drone shot and you see that their house is completely black there's other houses around them that are completely black but then there's also some like there's a couple that are on fire Mm -hmm. there are a couple that just have 
blue light emitting from every single window. So you can tell that everybody in this neighborhood was placed under presumably similar conditions, but they still found different paths out. Like some, everybody died, like in this movie, except for Ruby, obviously. But there are some that families may have just killed themselves. Some families may have just all turned themselves over and worshipped the TV. But obviously, there's a lot of subtext here about worshiping the screens and staring at the screens and awaiting a message to influence your decision. Mm-hmm. And that's where the movie ends. And there's a couple sort of psychological, philosophical things that we want to explore. Yeah. So the first one that Shane and I noticed is and that you might have noticed as well is that the family's last name that we follow here or surname <laughs> that we follow it here is Milgram. And in psychology, one of the m- more famous psychological experiments that took place is known as the Milgram experiment. So I'm going to read this from Wikipedia. So the Milgram experiments on obedience to authority figures was a series of social psychology experiments conducted by Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram. They measured the willingness of study participants, men from a diverse range of occupations with a varying level of education, to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. Participants were led to believe that they were assisting an unrelated experiment in which they had to administer electric shocks to a, quote, learner. These fake electric shocks gradually increased to levels that would have been fatal had they been real. And the experiment was all about how far were these test subjects willing to go? How long were they willing to shock these anonymous participants on the other side, of course, which were fake, but how far were they willing to go hearing the cries, the recorded cries from the other side of the wall, and so on and so forth. So it's it's very much linked with that idea of obedience without really knowing anything about the experiment. And it's so crazy that this call for authority, obviously these experiments were done in the 60s, but it's not isolated to that. So after we watched this last night, my girlfriend told me about, have you heard of the fast food strip search phone scam? No. Okay. This was a string of incidents that happened in the 90s, apparently starting in 1992. And there were these occurrences where someone would call like a McDonald's or a Burger King or something like that. I know it, it for a fact, it at least was McDonald's. Someone on the phone would be like, hi, we're with the FBI. One of your employees is wanted for XYZ crime. You need to isolate them in the back. So the manager would do so, and then the FBI agent over the phone would give them increasingly more invasive instructions because they would convince them they are holding very dangerous contraband. It needs to be extracted before we can siege the restaurant. So here's what you need to do to the point where, and again, these are fast food workers. A lot of them are teenagers. Many of them were women where increasingly they were like okay like tell her to take her apron off okay tell her to take her pants off her shirts off her bras off tell her to do naked jumping jacks tell her to <gasps> tell her to bend over some of them had to perform sex acts oh my god and it was it was a scam like it was just somebody on the other end of the phone that was like hey do this and sounded authoritative and how much a normal normal quote unquote person mm-hmm. would do in the presence or with the guise of authority being taken oh and they didn't this happened like 60 or 70 times <gasps> all over the place and it wasn't until someone finally was like i'm gonna call the cops and confirm this that it stopped and it went away i don't even know if they ever caught the person that what? was doing it 
I have never heard of this. How have I never heard of this? That's exactly what I said. I don't know how I hadn't heard of this either. But even like Philip Zimbardo, who was the person who did the Stanford prison experiment, Mm -hmm. again, another thing on the dangers of authority and the dangers of just blindly following a role that is prescribed to you or authority that is given commented on this and we watched a video about it last night and oh my i had never fucking heard of it apparently there's like podcasts and like documentaries about it i have i want to learn more about it but mm-hmm. just the fact this happened in the 90s and these poor girls were subject to these like strip searches and all of this Ugh. like level of assault because somebody over the phone told them to oh my god like isn't that nuts that is crazy i don't even re- i don't even really know like i want to know all about that there's a wiki page about it. Yeah, I got to look at that wiki page because I don't even know. Like, I can't believe I haven't heard of that before. I think a reason that I wanted to talk about this movie in the time that it was, was just due to us recovering from this election cycle, right? Mm-hmm. As the United States, obviously, this is a British movie, but the idea that there are folks that take one source or there are folks that take what the TV tells them and nothing else. In this movie external experience was not factored in it was only with the tv set mm-hmm. with the dad right like the fact that like okay we're gonna take these needles and oh angie's a doctor doesn't matter the tv didn't tell me to do it right so just the idea of not only the contentiousness that surrounds a holiday dinner table which obviously this is coming up on christmas so knowing that some of these political conversations that may have gotten skipped out over this thanksgiving holiday might be happening but just what happens when you not only take your opposing views on these external things but people's reactions to authority or people's reactions to who they worship or who they look up to and put it in a pressure cooker and see what happens i just thought this movie was so timely and interesting even though we're kind of made to see through Nick's perspective. And there's obviously so much we could say about toxic masculinity in this Mm, movie. mm -hmm. But the character of Angie, even though she was a little self-righteous at times, was a badass and was was always advocating for herself and Mm -hmm. always serving as a foil to Beth, who was very subservient, and to Kate, who was a carbon copy of her father. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts were on it. Yeah, Angie was a badass from the beginning. And I did appreciate that we at least got one moment where we got to see Beth finally speak up for herself and for her family and voice her opinion because it is so painful to see her be so in the background for so much of the movie. So it is nice and relieving and good that we get to see her come into herself even if she doesn't have a lot of time towards the end because she does die shortly after. But another thing that I noticed about this film is its connection to the philosophical idea of the culture industry. So in one of my grad classes I took, we read some critical theory and we learned about this theory of the culture industry that was coined in the 40s by Theodore Adorno and Max Horkenheimer. And the idea of the culture industry is basically that media and entertainment industries like theater, TV, radio, performance kind of govern our cultural and societal norms. So I noticed that in this movie because we were getting our instructions through a TV. The TV was very much at the heart of the household under the cross of Jesus Christ in this Christian household. We even see the mother praying to it. It's very influential in the decisions that this family makes. But something that is key to the theory of the culture industry is the idea that it creates the illusion of power 
within people who follow. So for example, a modern example might be TikTok. TikTok governs so much of our culture and how our culture moves forward, right? And who we see, what we see. There's an algorithm that determines that for us. But the fact that some people get TikTok famous and people are very creative on the app. And if you look at your screen breakdown time, they consider TikTok a creative way to spend your time, which I think is interesting. And it creates the idea that you can rise above your social standing and become TikTok famous and be a star or, you know, American Idol, like you can go on American Idol and be a star. You can rise above, but it makes these ideas so accessible that you forget that that's the minority. And so we watch television shows or we listen to podcasts that make us feel like by listening, we are a part of something when really a lot of the culture industry is encouraging you to listen to others and to stop being an active member in those things yourself. Anyway, it's a really complex theory, but I thought it was interesting to think about, in addition to all of these theories about the Milgram experiments, authority, religion, gender, toxic masculinity, all of these things together, I think it is interesting also to think about how the culture industry, television, shows, whatever, can drive us to do things that we might not normally do as well. I'm waiting for a TikTok horror movie. I don't know about you. That would be really good. I don't even know what that would be about. There's so many things, I guess, that could happen. I don't know. That would be good. I would watch that. So we're not going to be doing a horror movie on TikTok, but I do want to talk about the movies that we're going to be doing for the rest of this year. And one of them is based on a technology that we have been using a little too much lately. Tell me. Next week, we are going to be doing Better Watch Out. We're kicking off our holiday movie Bonanza. And by Bonanza, I mean two of them. (laughs) So we are going to be doing Better Watch Out, which I would say is like Home Alone Gone Slasher. Then we are going to be doing the 2019 remake of Black Christmas, which is a sorority movie holiday slasher. I'm scared. We're talking people getting strangled with Christmas lights. We're talking about pointy candy canes. (laughs) I am pumped. And then the movie we are closing out 2020 with is called Host. And that was actually made in 2020 and filmed completely on zoom oh my gosh it is a movie about a seance that goes wrong over zoom so while it's not a tiktok horror movie we do have some technological horror coming up because let's face it i think we all want to leave zoom in 2020 (laughs) yes we probably won't be leaving zoom in 2020 but we can leave the idea of a zoom seance being a good idea in 2020 i would never think that a zoom seance was a good idea for the record. Okay, yeah. So it, it definitely sounds like I'm going to be doing some emotional heavy lifting over the next couple of weeks watching these films. Listen, I think Better Watch Out and Black Christmas are both very fun. They are both going to be a blast. I would say we went from Ginger Snaps, which was a lot of fun, mm-hmm. into some historical context, and then we moved into some more severe political. But then we're going to do some holiday hoeing around. <sighs> and then we're going to end it with Host, which I would say is a little ghostly and you don't like ghost movies i i want to though like those are the movies that i think are the most interesting yes i remember watching the conjuring i know but i think i'm ready i'm ready to grow i'm ready to experience you're going to go into 2021 (laughs) a braver gal for it thank you so much 
Oh my god, Lola, yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, a new season. Oh yeah, you just don't oh, that. oh my gosh, we love Big Mouth so much, and a new season's coming out. Which I didn't realize. Yes, it's all based in a summer camp, which how slasher of it. Oh, we should talk about Big Mouth. Oh my God, yes. I Let us know if you want to talk about Big Mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so get in touch with us. You can email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Tell us about your scary movie experiences. Give us some recommendations for films that you want us to review. We want to hear from y'all. We want to know what you're about. We want to hear your ideas and your input. You can also get in touch with us on Instagram, also at The Horrors Podcast. Yeah, y'all need to check that out because Elise's gift game is strong (laughs) over on there. I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. I'm trying to amp it up to add some surveys, quizzes. And so far that I think that has been a lot more fun. So definitely keep in touch with us on Insta. And I think in 2021, Shay and I have been thinking about maybe getting some merch out there. Oh my God, we have ideas. We have some ideas. So that is definitely something that would be advertised primarily through this podcast and Instagram, just because it's it's something that we can access and get out there quicker. So if you want to stay in the loop about some merch, absolutely follow us on Instagram. And send us ideas of what you want on a shirt or Absolutely, a hat. absolutely. So that'll be interesting. I've, I've never really done merch stuff before, but I think we can do it. I'm pumped about it. And also, please, please, if you listen to this, or if you have listened to this, like, subscribe, download this podcast so we can get your numbers and see what's up, what's going well. It would mean so much to us for you to do that. Also, tell a friend, tell a family member. If you like us, maybe somebody else will like us too. Until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.